Trigger warning. This interview contains discussion of trauma, abuse, and self-harm. G'day and welcome to Shattered the Podcast. I am really excited. We've got a MEACT session today. MEACT stands for Mental Illness Education ACT, and I've got one of my colleagues, a volunteer uh, educator on the line. Uh, it's Ruth, mate. G'day. Thank you so much for being on Shattered the Podcast today. No problems at all, Mark. Thanks for inviting me. You are very, very welcome. Now, I got to hear your story, I think it was late last year, uh, and I think we were both struck at some of the similarities and some of the differences in our stories, and 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 I'm really excited to share with people a little bit of that today. So diving into the questions that we've already um, asked, uh, we've already talked about, um, first of all, who are you? Well, my name's Ruth. I've been living in Canberra for about 20 years. Uh, I have a husband and two sons. And currently, I am very near the completion of a master's degree at ANU in Museum and Heritage Studies. And I also do volunteer work uh, with MEACT, also with the National Museum of Australia, and also with the Museum of Australian Democracy. So you're not very busy at all. (laughs) Mate, it seems um, counterintuitive that somebody that has a mental illness and is not ashamed of it or embarrassed about it is doing so much that's face-to-face with people. Um, Do you find that strange yourself or it's just how things have worked out for you? Uh, It's not something that I could have done um, say 10 years ago um, uh-huh. or even five years ago. Um, I had bouts of being in and out of hospital for many, many years. Yeah. And my last hospital visit was 2015. And for a, quite a while there, I kept myself very quiet. I felt much more stable and much more happy than I had for a long time. But I kept myself very quiet because I was very worried about... Uh, a relapse. Um, If I did anything too anxiety-inducing or out of my comfort zone, then I might get a relapse. Yeah. And in 2019, I did have a relapse. And um, I'd learned a few lessons and got help straight away. And I stabilised quickly. So from that, I saw I could cope. So it was actually 2019, I started volunteering with MEACT. And I started volunteering with the National Museum. Uh, And then from that, um, I enrolled in doing a master's at ANU. Mm. So it all really flowed on from um, feeling a bit more confident about getting out of my shell. Yeah. So if I can ask, uh, do you have a diagnosis? Yes. Um, While I was going through my um, quite a number of trips into hospital, we had a little bit of trouble with diagnosis, which is not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually I was diagnosed with major anxiety, major depression and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Uh, I'm always encouraged when I hear somebody else talking about CPTSD. Uh, it's one of those things that the PTSD diagnosis for me never seemed broad enough. Um, 
so that when the clinicians came up with complex PTSD, I was very, very grateful and made me understand my diagnosis a lot better. Uh, was that your um, experience? Most definitely. Um, but first, there was a bit of shock at hearing PTSD. Sure. Um, I was actually in hospital with um, someone who'd worked in the armed forces and I'd always associated uh, PTSD with police officers, people in the defence forces. Um, I didn't know that it could be connected to other trauma. And when I was diagnosed, um, the sense of there being complex PTSD that might come from childhood trauma or repeated trauma in, in adults it was very, very new. Mm. Uh, my psychiatrist was actually confused about how I might be diagnosed. And he actually called in a mate who was a psychiatrist with the Defence Forces. Right. And he came in and said, yeah, you do have PTSD. He asked me, oh, it seemed like a hundred questions and said, yeah, this is a PTSD diagnosis but it's not like the ones I see with soldiers because you haven't been in a war zone. Yeah. Um, and my doctor then explained um, that this was complex PTSD, oh. um, which can be attributed to childhood trauma yeah. and trauma in um, other in other environments um, and conflict uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I found for me, when they explained to me that PTSD comes from a, a situation where you feel extremely helpless, uh, you're powerless. Uh, yep. As soon as somebody said that to me, I was like, oh, I, I know what that feels like. I've been there. <laughs> yes, I think it's the powerlessness. And what got me, um, because um, I had a lot of abuse uh, in my childhood, mm. uh, what got me was I had never thought I was going to be killed. Um, that wasn't a fear of mine. There were lots and lots of other ones. Um, but I'd only associated PTSD with um, direct threats of I might die here. And I had never had a sense that I was going to die. But I had had exactly, as you say, a sense of complete hopelessness, helplessness, powerlessness, and I think for me, the most important aspect was being trapped. Yeah. Um, that, that there was nowhere else I could go, um, that there was no um, end that I could see for this situation. Yeah. Can you try and describe what it feels like to live with your mental illness? Um, today, it's a constant I was thinking of the words battle and struggle, but mm -hmm. no, I won't use those. It's a, for me, I need to constantly reinforce that there are strategies and ways for me to keep stable. So I've been stable for years now, um, but it's something I have to work at every day. So in that way, I kind of um, feel like it's like fitness. Um, if you're not doing anything any every day, any sort of exercise, your fitness is going to go down. Mm. If you start doing a bit of exercise every day, your fitness will start to go up. Um, and if you're doing consistent exercise, you'll get really fit. So for me, it's maintaining a consistency with um, how I approach my symptoms, which are still 
all there and um, always will be. Um, with given my age and and how long they've been been there, yeah. But I can manage them now. Sometimes it's easier said than done, um, and some days I will struggle more. But I always have ways now where I can help how I'm feeling. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting analogy. It's one that I hadn't thought of before. That idea of like an elite athlete, they can't neglect their training uh, uh, otherwise they can't compete at the level that they need to compete and in many ways what you've just said reminds me that that's what I do in my life I I have to I can't just say I'm just going to go out there and grip it and rip it I have to keep the motor tuned I have to keep the exercise up that's a brilliant analogy mate I really like it was there a point in your life where you realized that something was squiffy with your mental illness. And that, of course, is the medical term, squiffy. (laughs) Yes, I've missed that diagnosis. I think it would have been a good one. It might have given me a laugh. Um, I realised early um, when I was around 11 that I was doing things that were not considered normal behaviour and doing things that I didn't consider were normal behaviour. Mm -hmm. but I didn't have names for them and I didn't have any means of controlling them. But I did hide them. Um, That was very much, I had a sense of shame and embarrassment right from the beginning. From 11 years old? From 11 years old. That's when I first started um, exhibiting symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder the shame you you think of a an 11 year old 12 year old 13 year old kid living with this sense of shame that they're different uh, I, it's 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 powerful that you're willing to talk about it um it was such a difficult time for me i don't know the extent i got this idea of shame about um, my mental process is not working the same as everyone else's from my parents or society in general. Um, but there was certainly a sense I had that normal people behave in a particular way and that I was behaving in ways that I had never seen anyone else yeah. uh, behave, that I had never seen depicted anywhere in a in books, in TV. Um and that this was different and it was shamefully different. So it needed to be hidden, but it wasn't something I felt I could stop. Hmm. I can't imagine, but uh, you know my story, my mental illness came in on later. I, I can't imagine how hard it would have been um, just to exist in that state. So you've, said that you you tried to hide it, you were ashamed, you were embarrassed. How did you start to ask for help? How, what was, was there a moment? Was there a time? Was there a person? Did something happen? How was it that you realized that you needed help and you were able to, to start down the track of getting help? Well, that took an extremely long time. Uh, because of my shame, I overcompensated in terms of trying to look incredibly normal and incredibly capable. Yeah. And if you'd seen me at school, you would have thought I was a high-achieving student. 
um, had lots of friends, you would not have looked at me and thought I was really struggling. Mm. Uh, when I first started self-harming, it did shock me to the degree that I did go to my mum for help. Um, and she was very dismissive uh, and made her disgust clear. It was just, well, that was a really stupid thing to do, wasn't it? And then it was never mentioned again. It was very much a sense of you should not have done that. Um, that's not what we do. And I don't ever want to hear about it again. So that really reinforced for me that this was not acceptable behaviour. Mm. But again, I didn't have a name for it and I didn't feel like I could control it to the point of stopping it. So again, it became very hidden. Uh, and that stopped me seeking help for a long time. That, that's something that may strike people as being odd, and I don't want to go into the details of it in any way, shape or form, but the idea that you've self-harmed and it's shocking to you, uh, it, it, it almost seems like a dichotomy that, you know, this is something that you've contemplated, it's something that you've done, but you're still shocked by it yourself. I was completely shocked. I didn't, it felt to me very like the OCD symptoms. Right. It was something that was happening to me, um, but I didn't have a name and I didn't understand why. I felt the compulsion, but I did not understand why. Um, and that felt very shameful to me and embarrassing. And it also set up something that, really stopped me from getting help later on um, because I felt like, why am I doing this when I don't want to? I don't want to be different. I don't, I don't want my mother to be disgusted with me. I don't want people to look at me as if there's something wrong with me. But why can't I stop? So that really set up a, if I just tried hard enough, I'd be able to stop this. Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't seek help for a long time for a lot of complicated reasons, but one of them was if I just concentrate hard enough, if I just try hard enough, I can make this stop. Yeah. Um, and I couldn't. You, you're such an inspiration to me, Ruth. Uh, I'm, I'm, every time I hear your story, I, I, I'm emotionally compelled by it to just – I'm just so inspired by it. So let's talk about the fact that you went through, from my understanding, many, many years of this hiding, this cycle of shame, this keeping it quiet. What, what was, what happened? How did you get to the point where you're able to say, hang on, something is really wrong and I need help? I knew something was really wrong for a long time. Um, but I also knew that I was a damn fine pretender. Mm. So my hope was that eventually the confusion and chaos in my mind, it's it was the, and I don't like this phrase, I know a lot of people use it and it's helpful for a lot of people. For me it wasn't, the fake it till you make it. Yeah. <laughs> I felt if I could fake it on the outside for long enough, I would make it. My my confusion, my mental health difficulties would match what people saw on the outside, which was confident, 
articulate, um, happy. Mm. When my husband and I were in Queensland, I got to the stage. Um, I, I, and I, I don't want to get into too too many details, and I don't want to go against do no harm. But I self harmed to the extent that um, I needed to have an operation. Right. Um, so that was completely not intending to. My self harm <laughs> was always intended to be. Uh, something that never involved anyone else. Yeah. I never, ever wanted anybody to know, ever. Um, when I was in hospital, um, the nurses were very nice to me until they found out why I was in there. Um, and then they weren't nice. And then they were not at all. Um, they were very dismissive. A, um, a number of them had been very chatty with me, and oh, but then they would read. It would be literally that's oh, this is a pity. We'd have a good chat. They would pick up my chart. They would see self harm. They would just walk off. Um, so I still got a lot of shame from that. But once I got out of hospital, I realised I needed this. Was not something that I ever wanted repeated. This situation. Was so, you, you, you said at the time you were married? Did, yes. What was your husband's take on this? Did he know that you were struggling? I mean, that's the thing in a marriage. We both know that it can be extremely hard to hide anything from your spouse. I mean, what was? And and again, we can't speak for him, but how did? What was his take on all this? I mean, he must have been desperately worried about you. He was um, very, very worried. He knew all about it. Um, there weren't any sorts of secrets then. Um, I was having problems with alcohol at the time too. Right. Um, with binge drinking. I wasn't um, what you would class typically alcoholic. I didn't have to drink. I wasn't drinking every day. Um, I would go a couple of months without drinking. But then something would happen and there would be a big binge drinking episode. Right. So all of these sorts of symptoms were stacking up. Um, my husband was very, very worried, um, but he had two difficulties, um, roadblocks in his way in terms of um, pushing me to get help. The first one was he grew up in the most normal, for want of a better expression, loving family that you could ever imagine. Yeah. Um, and they were wonderful to me, by the way, once I got married and they were really, really important for me in terms of seeing loving parents. Yeah. Um, but so he was a little bit confused. He wasn't um, disgusted by any of my symptoms or thought that made me a terrible person but he was honestly adrift yeah. as to what you do in this situation. The second roadblock was because of my shame, I never wanted to be pushed to do something. Right. And he knew that. And I think it was particularly important to me because as a kid um, and as an abused kid, I had completely lost all my sense of control. And I explained this very well to my husband and he realised that if he forced me along to some sort of appointment, that was going to trigger me yeah. really, really badly. That was going to be a sense of this is not under my control anymore 
Um, and that was my greatest fear. Um, and it is still my greatest fear. Yeah. Being put in a situation where I no longer have control, what happens to me? Yeah. So you've come out of hospital, your husband's concerned, you're concerned, you've um, had this, it, it's kind of a, it, it's like a, 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 a moment of clarity. It seems like you've had your, you, you're in hospital, you've, you've harmed yourself in a way that you cannot hide. Where do you go from here? What, what was your process then? Well, my process then ends up in an extremely sad story, unfortunately. This is one that I don't share when I am doing the school's education program. Yeah. I skip straight to when I got help and it actually helped um, because I have got help later on that was b- excellent and brilliant. Yes. This first lot of help, though, I got was disastrous. Right. Um, We lived in Queensland in a town of about 60,000 people. There was only one psychiatrist. (sighs) Um, I steeled myself to go along. The one huge plus I had in my favour was a wonderful GP. Um, And I I say to everyone, get yourself a good GP. It's always an excellent starting point for getting mental health treatment. Um, But I had an excellent GP. He said, you need help, Ruth. We need to do something else here. Now, just to to cut in, there's going to be people listening overseas. A GP is just like your family doctor. In Australia, it's a general practitioner. So you've got this wonderful GP. Wonderful GP. And he... um, said he would give me a referral and he could only refer me to the only psychiatrist in town. And I went along. I really steeled myself to go along. I was very worried. I was very um, self-conscious about being marked out. I was seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, I kept it very secret from everyone but my husband. But I went along and I did go along with Finally, I'm going to get some help. Finally, I'm not going to be carrying this on my own. And I did expect it to be a confronting experience, but I did expect it to help. The first time I went in for an appointment, the first thing he did was lock me into 10 appointments. Um, He said, right, we'll we'll be having 10 appointments. He hadn't even heard anything about me. Um, And that instantly made me feel like I was... I lost control. Yep. Instantly made me feel trapped. The next thing he asked me about what my symptoms were, how I'd grown up, what was happening now. And I told him all that and it was with a real sense of relief um, because it was the first time I'd really talked about a lot of these things. My GP knew in patches. Um, After the end of that, he said, now, what you need to be doing is just getting over this. It's just you need to just move on. You need to you need just be getting over this. I understand that doesn't sound very pleasant, but we need to be teaching you ways where you just get over it. Um, and that really tapped into my sense of, well, I could just get rid of this if I really, really tried. Yeah. Uh, he actually said, um, I don't like prescribing medication. I don't think people need it. 
I think they use it as a crutch. And if they tried hard enough, they could do it themselves. And he also said, when I was saying how many problems I was having at home with pretending, uh, that I was being cruel to my husband, which was another massive fear of mine. Yeah. So it ended up with me being locked into these 10 sessions where every session I was told that if I wasn't making an improvement, I was not trying hard enough. Um, now, I took what he said on board. Uh, <laughs> this was a medical professional telling me these things. So all my fear of that I could get rid of this any time I wanted if I just tried hard enough was confirmed. Now, first of all, I will say for anyone else in Australia, this was a couple of decades ago. Uh, so you are unlikely, I think, to meet that attitude now. Um, the second thing that I will say is this was a very bad doctor, as I found from other patients. And he actually got struck off, which means he couldn't uh, practice as a psychiatrist because he had a relationship with another patient. So you're talking about a guy that was pretty much morally bankrupt, clearly uneducated. Yep. We have this feeling that when you go to somebody that's got that psychiatry name, that, that, that they must be close to godlike. They must be, they must be um, able to help me no matter what. They've studied hard. They've done the hard yards. It, it took me a long time to realize that there were good and bad psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, this idea that they're still human and they still can come into it. And, and even if they're not a bad clinician, they might just not gel with you. you and I've had that um, where just, I just haven't been able to gel with the person that's trying to help me. This person obviously, <laughs> oh, oh man, do no harm. I, I, I want to punch the guy. <laughs> I did later. At the time, I felt completely beholden to him. I felt like, well, you're the expert. You must be right. Yeah, of course. So how do you get past that? How do you uh, – I I know that you have, and I'm so grateful that you have because you speak so wonderfully about the clinicians that helped you later on. How did you come to the understanding that, hang on, this guy was – I mean, you can't put it any other way. He was harming you. He wasn't helping you. That's definitely right. And it took me a very, very long time. And it stopped me seeking help again. Oh, uh, actively stopped me seeking help again for over a decade. For 10 years, for a decade. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, over 10 years. Um, it absolutely compounded my sense of shame. And I never, ever wanted to seek help again. Um, we, we then moved to Canberra. Um, and part of um, the reason that I then sought help again, because um, I had all these things going on in my head again that I could cure myself if I tried hard enough, that I was just being cruel by having these mental health difficulties. Um, it took me so long to get over that fear. It only happened when we got to Canberra and I was getting again to the point where I couldn't pretend. Yeah. Uh, it was getting again to the point that my behaviours were getting um, 
dangerous enough uh, that it was going to become obvious to other people. And that was the thing that would scared me the most. So I thought, I've got to get help again. And I spoke to a friend that I'd made here. Yeah. And she was excellent. And again, the link here with the family practitioner, with the family doctor was vital because she made sure I got an appointment with a good GP. And again, I went along and again, he was excellent. Mm. He was a really, really good GP. And again, I can't emphasize enough search around till you find a family doctor you like, because I think it's right, Mark, you don't gel with everyone. Find a family doctor you gel with and ask them, what's your advice? He said he had a good mate who was a psychiatrist and he would give me a referral to him. I said about my previous experience, I said I didn't want to go and he was very reassuring. Uh, I made the appointment still didn't want to go. And what I actually did, and my psychiatrist would would tease me about it for the rest of our time we saw each other, because I was so scared. The first time I sent my husband along, my husband went to the appointment for me. And my husband went and said, look, my wife's sorry she couldn't come, but she had this experience. He explained all about the experience. And my and my husband said quite openly, and she wants me to check you out. And the, the doctor, um, the psychiatrist said, seemed sensible to me. So that was a first tick in his favour. Yeah. He talked to my husband. He said, this is how I operate. This is what we'll do. I got enough of a uh, passing grade from my husband, as my psychiatrist then called it. <laughs> so I came along the next time and he was instantly relaxing by making jokes yeah. at my expense, but in a very bantering, joking way like you do um, yeah. with someone that you're friendly with. He said, oh, I got a passing grade, did I? Um, oh, well, I'm glad you felt like you could come along. I'm not really that scary. Um, and then he really helped me by saying in a very serious way, and that doctor you had before, bloody bastard. <laughs> um, and that really helped. Um, Isn't and it amazing how you've, you, you could have done something that really would have thrown, could have thrown a professional for a loop. I'm certain your previous doctor, if something like that had happened, he would have found a way to make it a personal insult. Yep. A good clinician just goes, hey, if this is going to help you, then let's do it, whatever it's going to take. Uh, I'm so encouraged by that as well. You, your experience with the mental health system, which is what a lot of people ask me about, can be hard, can be tough. But when you find the right combination, when you find the right team, um, it's a completely different story, isn't it? Completely different story. I will just make a, a small side note there, Mark, just to add into what you said before about you mightn't gel. My psychiatrist, and I've said to him, I think was life-saving. But and also getting the right team, the right GP, the right psychiatrist, and then getting help in hospital. But I knew other patients in hospital. My psychiatrist would visit in hospital. He was connected to the hospital. I knew other patients who had had him as a psychiatrist and said, oh, he's the worst. <laughs> I can't 
stand him. And then they'd gone on to find other ones. So who you gel with is a, a personal thing. Um, but with me, it really, really gelled. And then once I had him, once I had my great GP, and once I was in a hospital environment where I felt respected and supported, then that started me on the road to stability. Yeah. Understanding uh, what, why I had uh, mental health difficulties, what I could do to help uh, stabilise myself. I do hesitate in my case to say recover. Um, I don't think that this is something that I will recover from, as you you might from uh, a physical illness, mm. um, but certainly a stabilisation um, and on the road to recovery. Um, uh, but that really, really helped. Once that was in place, it was the start, but it was still a very long journey after that. Yeah, obviously the person that's been the biggest support to you, um, your husband, I had the absolute pleasure of meeting him a couple of weeks ago. And it's funny because when you talked about him and the things that he'd done for you and the way that he'd support you, I was expecting to meet a towering, imposing, powerful man but he was just so normal and quiet and soft-spoken and yep. I just thought I, I I I look at this man and I, I know the strength that he has because I can see how much you adore him how much he has impacted your life how important he is to you and just such a wonderful, wonderful man. And I, and I know I'm not saying anything that you don't agree with a hundred percent there. Maybe um, about the quiet thing. Maybe he's, he was quiet <laughs> with me. But... He is quiet. Uh, he's a very humble man. Um, he's, he's very um, modest. Um, he's all of those things, but he's also been, the most incredibly supportive, and perhaps he was supportive because of all those things. Um, when I first started having very real difficulty and was in and out of hospital, um, Nick just took it as a matter of course mm. that he would support me. There was no sense of shame. There was no sense of um, embarrassment. What he did was he just told everyone openly at his workplace. He was in a very supportive, and I was lucky for this workplace, um, where he was he was popular and, and well-respected. No one had heard about my mental health difficulties before, but Nick explained to them briefly. Um, and he said, uh, my wife has to go into hospital. And his boss was incredibly supportive and said, well, obviously, um, you can have some carer's leave. And my husband said, I don't need blocks of days off, but I do need, I want um, every lunch hour free to go and see my wife in hospital. And then I'd like to be able to knock off at three to pick up the kids. And his boss said, that's great. We'll just add up those hours. And that will, instead of taking two weeks of carer's leave, leave or two months, um, we'll put those hours in. And that's what 
my husband did. He worked his work hours around it. He would come and see me every lunch hour, um, which I said he didn't have to do. I felt like it was essential for me. I really did. But I also, I didn't want to disrupt his life to this degree. And he said, I want to come and see you. (laughs) And that, that was just like the end of it. He said, I want to come and see you. And he would, there were washing facilities at the hospital, but I was very scattered. Um, I was very scattered at that time. I didn't feel fully capable of just completing everyday tasks, concentrating a lot. A lot. So he would say, he would say to me, I am so grateful for that, Ruth. And I'd say, what the hell? He'd say, I'm so grateful because I want to help you and I can't fix this. But I can damn well pick up your washing <laughs> and take it home and wash it and bring it back to you. And it's so simple, but it makes me feel like I'm doing something. Because he would say, I want to fix you. I want to click my fingers. I want to buy you antibiotics and be able to give them to you and you get better like an infection and I can't. So I'm really pleased I can do these simple things. And he just helped me feel like it wasn't a disaster that I was so mentally ill I had to be in hospital. It, 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 I feel so. I have a man crush on your husband. I just, I mean, I'm so fortunate to meet somebody like you because I have a wife that's the same. I, yeah. I have a wife that. I, I remember meeting your wife at the same time. She was lovely. Yeah, just this tower of strength and purpose and hope and and just and they choose me. I just. I like Nick more and more. So I want to ask you, what are you most proud of post your diagnosis now? When you look at your life, what are you most proud of? Accepting my diagnosis. Uh, I had a long time accepting it. It was part of the reason that I had to keep going in and out of hospital. I wouldn't accept it at first. I kept it in my mind. I didn't think it was shameful to get diagnoses that I'd been given. I just, if other people did, I wouldn't think that they were, um, had a character flaw. I just think that this was something that had happened to them like a physical illness. Um, But for myself, I persisted with the idea, but it's different for me. I'm choosing it. I could be able to get rid of it. I viewed it as cowardice and uh, not being strong enough. So I was put on medication in hospital to help stabilise me. And I would take it, and as soon as I got out of hospital, I would say, right, I'm strong enough now, I'll just ditch the meds, and I can do it on my own. And that pattern happened so many times. And then, of course, I would go downhill, have to go back into hospital. So part of the – and I still – I just didn't get it. It was like this time I'm going to be strong enough. I'm stable again. I'm going to make it stick without medication. In 2015, lo and behold, by complete coincidence, I stuck with my medication and I didn't need to go back to hospital. (laughs) And I think that was when I finally just accepted my diagnosis and accepted that it wasn't a character flaw. It was because of things that had happened to me that me kicking against it was exactly like kicking against. And I use this example when I'm speaking in schools. If I did have a broken arm and I wouldn't get treatment because 
my treatment was to wish I didn't have it, that I was just being stubborn. Yeah. I was being stubborn and I was hurting myself. So I think the I'm really proud that I accepted it and decided to work with it instead of against it. Yeah. You, we mentioned at the beginning that you volunteer with MEACT and it's important to note that what we do is we go into schools, workplaces, universities, high schools. We're about to start going into primary schools and we talk about the lived experience of mental illness, uh, our experiences. It's our personal stories. We aren't going in with solutions. We don't go in and say this is how you cure mental illness. We just go in and say, hey, this is how I have made it through. Ruth, I want to ask you, why is it so important for you to do that? Why have you put your hand up and said, I will go and I will speak to people that I don't know about this incredibly personal um, issue of mental illness? Well, when I first went along, um, I was extremely nervous. I was, I'd had a huge break because of my hospital visits and the mental illness um, a huge break in my employment history um, and a huge break with just getting out and about in the community. I had my close friends um, and um, I had my husband and sons. We'd go and do things, but I didn't have any sense of connection within the community. So I wanted to try and get that and I looked around at volunteering um, opportunities and the, the Me Act one just hit me in the face. It's like, okay, that sounds like I've got the right experience for that. <laughs> um, that sounds one that I really match for experience. So I went along, um, but I was very much saying to myself, look, I can just go along to the info session. I can just sit in the back quietly. And if I don't like the sound of this, I'll just, you know, I just won't go back again. I can leave halfway through. I'll just say I'm going to the toilet and never come back. And no one, no one will really notice. But I went along and the first thing that struck me so forcibly was we were all sitting around at the info session. We were being given info, but it was like here. It was also a conversation. Yeah. And we were sitting around talking about things that I, for my entire life, had been told um, never to talk about with other people. Um, and particularly not strangers. So we were a group of strangers sitting there discussing um, difficulties and stigma about mental illness. And I instantly felt a sense of community. And I had never got that before. I felt like there's a community here, particularly with people who have chronic and serious mental illness. This is actually a group of people, what is a community, but a group of people with something in common. Mm. Um, and it, there was just a sense of community feeling and like I belonged that I had not got anywhere else. And I got that increasingly as I went through the training and that just simply gave me confidence to go and speak in schools and speak in workplaces. And as I say now, just that sense of being able to speak openly, I personally found it very addictive. Um, and so I say to the kids uh, when I speak in schools, part of my self-care, part of my keeping myself stable, part of my road to recovery 
is coming and speaking to you today. So thanks for thanks for listening. Um, I really like working with my me act because of that sense of this is okay to talk to about to talk about. Stigma tells us we shouldn't, mm. but we can, and that's how we're going to break down stigma. So you went through all the training. You thought this looks good. You've got a nice sense of community. How has the experience been for you now that you've uh, uh, you've done it for a couple of years now? Um, how has the experience been, like just in retrospect, looking back at it, and what are your thoughts on your experience of working with MEAC? Um, I've had a, a wonderful experience um, and continue having a wonderful experience. Particularly early on, I would feel quite nervous. I think anyone can understand that. I mean, it's nerve-wracking, most people say, even to speak in public, um, let alone to be speaking about mental illness. Um, Early on, I had such good reactions in classrooms that it really reinforced um, that this was a useful um, and enjoyable thing to be doing. you know, some classes were um, a bit easier than others. Sometimes you'd get classes where, you know, the kids were surreptitiously looking at their phones or <laughs> maybe the teacher wasn't maintaining discipline quite as much as you would have liked. Um, but I never had very disruptive classes. And I very often had really supportive and really um, really supportive classes who were interested to learn more. Uh, and would ask questions and seem to genuinely value us being there. Because with me, Act, you always speak with a, a partner. And the classes seemed genuinely interested um, and and they found us telling our experiences valuable. Mm. And that's very reinforcing to keep on going. And me Act was, of course, very supportive in terms of structure. Uh, there's a very... Um, stressed sense of if you have a difficulty any time in terms of an engagement you've had, get in touch, debrief, speak to us. Yeah. And I've never actually needed that. Yeah. Uh, but it's great to know it's there. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was the day uh, that I was, uh, I copped a, a kid yelling abuse at me on the way into the school, um, just swearing at me. And my colleague, my um, other volunteer educator was incredible in supporting me. And when we reported it to me act, they took it very, very seriously. Um, that is one of the things that I do like about it is even though you are exposed, you do feel like you're in a safe place. You've got people that will look after you. And it is interesting. I, I've started thanking kids that are really attentive during the sessions. They might not be asking questions or anything, but just the fact that they're paying attention, they're looking at you with kindness and compassion. Um, A lot of times I'm just very grateful to the kids for that. So Ruth, this has been incredible. I could speak to you all day I very much hope that we can get you back on again because there's so many aspects of your story that will uh, impact on people so mightily. Uh, I want to ask you, though, what is your best advice for somebody that 
maybe doesn't know much about mental illness, maybe concerned, may love somebody that they're concerned. What's the best advice that you have for somebody that's looking at the world of mental illness and seeing that it might be might affect them? Uh, my my very best advice is, um, and I think you will have seen this come out in our discussion. Get a family doctor that you gel with and that you like and that you trust. That's been a an absolute critical thread for me in my help seeking. Um, and mental health services can be very difficult to ask, um, to access. Uh, if you're looking at psychologists and psychiatrists, there can be very long waits. Personally, I think that's down to societal stigma. Um, I don't think governments and services have put enough money in because it's like, let's sweep that under the carpet. I think it is changing, but it can still be long waits for access to specialised services. Yeah. But particularly where we are here, I don't know in other places, um, it's relatively easy to get a, a, a um, appointment with a family doctor and it's relatively easy to look make appointments with quite a few in a short amount of time. Yeah. If you get that link in place, um, and my best advice here too is I don't know how many people realise you can look up medical practices. Most of them have their doctors with a little bio listed and most of the doctors will say what their general interests are in terms of medicine. If you see one, as I did with the GP I've got now, that one of their interests is mental health, go to them. They're usually switched on, on the ball, up with reading, um, and they can speak to you about this with um, compassion um, and with a, a big level of knowledge. Um, if you get a good doctor, they often, and particularly if they're interested in mental health, they will have contacts with psychiatrists and psychologists. Um, each time I've had a GP that's helped me, they have got me a special appointment with a doctor um, further up the chain that they knew. Yeah. Um, so that can happen. Um, and instead of we made, waiting months, I've waited weeks. So my very best advice is find a family doctor that you trust and um, work out together where to go, whether it's for you or if you're seeing them about someone you care about. Ruth, mate. As always, it's amazing to talk to you. I'm so grateful that we've been able to record the conversation today. Um, but I just, mate, thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a really interesting um, experience, and I think you're a very good interviewer and host. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. <laughs>